Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I want to actually start in a in a somewhat unconventional way, because we are thousands of miles across uh, the country from one another, um, is there a way that you can suggest that we both move our bodies to help yes, us Yes, you be? can do what I'm doing now. If you were here with me, you would not need me to instruct. But we are sitting in our swivel chair, and we are moving our knees from side to side, and we are rolling our heels to the outside as we rotate from side to side, and we're slumped, and we're concerned about the slump, and we say, sit up straight. So we do that. We have to adjust. It's a big deal. You got to get your chair in much closer to the table. Now you're adjusted. You're sitting up straight and you're still woggling from side to side. You with me? Mm-hmm. Good. Yes, I am. Okay. And I am 5'4", and my toes are barely hitting the floor. Are your toes, are your feet firmly planted on the ground in your chair? Yes, and I'm 5'3". Get down. <laughs> <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. How do you live your life? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Need more money, Steve. Billy, I need more money. And need to talk about more. Will you dance with me? I'm Anna Sale. Twyla Tharp is a five-foot, three-inch giant in the world of dance. Since launching her career as a choreographer and dancer six decades ago, she's become best known for blending classical elements of ballet with more modern styles. She's also known for a certain kind of rigor, both in terms of her technique and the discipline she brings to her work. That's something she's documented in books like The Creative Habit and her latest, Keep It Moving. She's 78 now and still choreographing new works. And she told me days off are not a big part of her life. Uh, I try not to have them. Really? <laughs> yeah, basically. No, uh, Sunday for me, my family uh, is Quaker, and Sunday is a very special day. So working through a Sunday is difficult, but I do do it sometimes. Uh, 
Uh, but on on those days, uh, what would I do? I would probably still stretch a little. I mean, the body can't just curl into itself. Uh, and uh, then read and do everything more slowly, everything that one always wishes during the week. Oh, if only I had time, maybe I wouldn't have burned my coffee. I made that up. My coffee is always burned, no matter how much time I take. Twyla was born in a farming community in Indiana. And in 1950, her family moved to California, near San Bernardino. Her family ran a drive-in movie theater. And Twyla was put in music and dance classes by her mother, who believed she would be famous. She ruled the world, uh, and she was incredible. Um, So I've always been highly programmed. Highly programmed. Yeah, highly programmed. And people say, well, didn't you resent it, and weren't you rebellious? No, I was too smart for that. I did what I was told to do because my mother made certain that the instruction that I received was the very best that she could find. And I learned a lot as a kid. And I'm very grateful that I didn't rebel. What for you was, was the, the, the itch that, that prompted you to move from California to New York when you were in college? Oh, I got kicked out of the chapel midterm for making out. And so the, the, the college decided that I should leave midterm or, or whenever I left. Maybe it was the end of freshman year. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I tell the story. I think it works. <laughs> Did you, as you were getting to know the landscape of dance and dancers in New York City, did you have a sense of where you wanted to fit? Well, that is a very interesting question. How long do we have for the answer? (laughs) (laughs) As long as you want to get me. I mean, my classical technique uh, was something, but I knew it wasn't really uh, top drawer. Uh, So I Mm -hmm. came here to accomplish what I could of that, even though at the age of whatever, 19 or 20, it was too late. Uh, But I worked very hard, and what I saw were the people who had started doing this much younger, working at this level much younger. I was smart enough to stand behind them and learn from them, but to also realize, you know what, babe, your triple pirouette to the left sucks. I think you better find another occupation. So I continued working classically, but I had transferred to Barnard College and had partially come to New York to study forms of dance that were not available in Southern California, basically so-called modern dance. So Mm -hmm. I am going into the gymnasium in the bottom floor of Barnard's main building for my first modern dance class of all times, and I go in the door, and the teacher says, we will now dance a sunrise. And I said to myself, I don't think so. I turned around, (laughs) I walked out, I went to the dean, I said, I did not come here to dance sunrises, I came here to study modern dance. Martha Graham is teaching, Merce Cunningham is teaching, I'll go study with them, and you will give me credit. And she said, okay. On top of her college classes, Twyla started taking two, sometimes three dance classes a day at different studios around the city. And while she was learning a lot from her teachers, she was also figuring out her own style. I said to myself, well, okay, Merce does great what he does, and Martha does great what she does, but I don't want to do what they do. Go see if you can figure out what you do want to do. And I think ultimately that's how I became... Uh, my own dancing person. 
Twyla graduated from Barnard in 1963 and quickly got a job as a dancer for Paul Taylor's company, another major modern dance ensemble. Just two years later, she choreographed and premiered her first work, Tank Dive, and decided to form her own dance company. My first five years were spent with a remarkable group of women. And these ladies uh, and myself worked every day, all day, in any space we could find. Uh, the Judson we'd go and sign up for, but you couldn't occupy the space the entire day, every day, every week of the year. So you had to find other alternative spaces. And so we went to three or four condemned buildings and managed to get in and rehearsed in them for a while. And nobody got paid anything, excepting if we got a gig that paid, we split it between us all evenly. And that's how it worked. And we did it because we wanted to do it. So no one got paid anything with that company? You didn't expect that the dancing was going to support you financially. That's not why you were doing it. You were doing it to dance. Mm -hmm. What kind of apartment were you living in at the time? I had a loft. How many people did you live with? Myself. Yourself in a loft apartment no just apartment, out of college? No apartment. Hello. There was no elevator. There was no shower. There was no hot water. There was no kitchen. It's illegal to be there. It's not an apartment. It's a loft. It's space. I see. It's I'm not space. picturing the right thing. <laughs> did, you, did you go out at night on nights off? No, I'm a dancer. Listen, I got to be up in the morning. I got to be in class. I didn't do the scene, and I consciously did not do the scene because I wasn't there to occupy party space as a dancer. That was not huh. my intention. So you wouldn't go out. You weren't going out and taking it in. You were going to bed taking care of your body. Yeah, I was I was invested in examining the possibilities of human movement and dance. And furthermore, I knew even at that age that the scene was a distraction. Uh, a distraction how? How did you see it at the uh, time? Because it it has its own it has its own priorities, which is aren't we all very cute? Uh, and I just wanted to know, well, sure, but what can we do? The Twyla Tharp Dance Company took off. It was touring internationally, and in 1973, Twyla made her first crossover ballet, Deuce Coupe, set to songs by the Beach Boys. Her personal life was changing, too. In 1971, she gave birth to her son, Jess. But pregnancy did not slow her down. I turned it into a project. Uh, I managed to get, in this period of time, my very first video deck. So I was carrying a Panasonic up and down stairs with a tripod, with a wall and sack, uh, you know, with the camera, uh, in order to set it up in the corner and be able to document uh, one reel every week on which I would record a half hour of improvisation to the same piece of music. 
and I acknowledged as the pregnancy developed that there were things that I should cut out, like, for example, Batman to the back should go. Uh, and you want to be really careful about how you torque the pelvis when you're throwing the leg to the side. But I continued to do very aggressive movement, which I do have on camera right up until the day I went in. I was doing some very aggressive falls the day I went in or just before. And my son looks at them and he goes, Mom, oi. I said, I know. I don't know. <laughs> so every week during your pregnancy, as your body is changing, you have this you have this record of how your body was changing and how your movement was changing. Exactly. And exactly. What what I what how I was restricting the range of my movement. That's so it, I, what a way to deal with the frustrations of pregnancy to turn uh, it eliminate into a curiosity. Them, right? Make it yeah. into a major celebration of what you can do. Uh, it was extreme, but uh, I think serviceable. And after you, you were a single parent after about a year, is that right? More or less. So how did you, how did that work early Not easily. and work? Not easily. Uh, for one thing, I went back to the loft. The loft is, as I said before, without elevators, straight up, 78 steps. So now not only am I carrying the groceries, the laundry, and the wall and sack up 78 flights, I have a child. Uh, yeah. And this loft is still illegal, which means diapers cannot go into the trash can on the corner. They got to go at least four or five blocks away. And you are tearing up envelopes so you don't have your name and your address on them, stuff like that. You do become a bit paranoid. But that was essentially our home base for several years uh, before he needed to go to school. Uh, then I moved uptown. Who was helping you? Uh, I had begun to form a small administration. I mean, everyone who was working in the company at that time uh, loved him. The only rule in the studio was don't step on the kid because he'd be <laughs> crawling around and, you know, be up and about. And I figured, well, gee, he's a lucky one. He's got lots and lots of moms. This is great. Well, maybe. Uh, but uh, they were very generous with him, and I think that, you know, it's a lot for a kid to take in. Uh, and then he began to have his own life when he went to school. Yeah. And he announced when he was 11 that he wanted to go to boarding school? He did. And that seemed probably reasonable because the company at that point was becoming uh, – much uh, more established, uh, and we were touring a lot, and uh, it was a very real split uh, between the time and attention and presence that I could have with him and still function with the company, and I was still performing, as well as making the dances, and, you know, when he said he wanted to go to boarding school, I felt it was an option that should be considered because there he would be in a in an ongoing situation where people could be giving him full attention. And for you, when you think about the relationships that you had with the people in your company at that stage or, or even even ongoing, I mean, these, these are relationships that you have for many, many years. Have you thought of them as part of your family? Have you thought of them as employees? 
It's both. It's both. And it's an interesting question because uh, many modern dance companies, of which there are not many, but certainly Merce's, Paul's companies, the Taylor Company, uh, they did connect to as family, but neither Merce nor Paul had children. They didn't have a family. Jess is my family. The company and people that you dance with, move with intimately with that kind of connective uh you're in the trenches, uh, have a very special relationship. But it ought not be, for everybody's sake, confused with family because, you know, come Thanksgiving, people split. Hmm. So having your own son, having Jess, kind of helped you see that distinction. Having a child gave me a, an anchor that otherwise uh, would, uh, there would have been periods of time when I would have been without a North Star. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How is Only that if you stop whispering. <laughs> can, can you tell me? <laughs> Thank let you. Let me say it when they project it more. I, I was slumping. I need to push. Don't I need to slump. set up more. Right. Ah, I'm noticing my posture has. Ah. Okay. All right. Um, can you you mentioned your north star he has been your north star right and and i i just said um can you tell me more about that that's that's a striking well, when, way to describe your mother right your mother uh, and that umbilical cord in a way is never broken uh, so that child is your north star uh, and you want to spare them any pain and you want to give them every advantage uh, and that's what a parent is Coming up, Twyla talks about what she's learning in her current phase of life and how she feels about getting older. I have been in a singular position. Uh, most classical ballerinas uh, have retired close to the age of 40, certainly by the age of 45, because they're limited by the repertory. They're limited by the swan likes. They're limited by the Giselles. The roles don't change. They change. For myself, as I continue to dance, I'm in charge of the role. I change the role to what I can do. And I always assumed that I would go as long as I would go. End of story. We often hear from you that when a particular guest or topic on our show reminds you of someone in your life, you send them a link to the episode, maybe with a little note explaining why it made you think of them, which is a really loving thing to do. So we decided this Valentine's Day, we'd like to encourage all of you to do this. Pick out an episode of Death, Sex, and Money for the people you love and send them a link to it. We've made this easy for you. At deathsexmoney.org slash valentine, you'll find a short list of 20 episodes of our show that seem especially appropriate for Valentine's Day. You'll also find a valentine there that you can download and send along with your suggestion. Yes, we made a special Death, Sex, and Money Valentine card. There's also a link to our entire episode archive at that page if the episode you're thinking about didn't make the short list. Again, that's all at deathsexmoney.org slash valentine. One of the episodes that is on our Valentine's list is with actor and comedian Ken Jung. He came on the show to talk about starting out his career as a medical doctor, deciding to switch careers, and then filming his breakout role in The Hangover while his wife was going through breast cancer treatment. I did everything in my power to actually think like a doctor and to think clinically. I mean, just for strength, you know, because obviously I was emotional. 
So to calm me down, I had to, you know, be in doctor mode. We're going to share that episode with all of you again. Look out for it in your podcast feed next week. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand, like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. 
I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In her new book, Keep It Moving, Twyla Tharp writes, Age is not the enemy. Stagnation is the enemy. But when she was starting out as a young dancer and thinking about the typical arc of a career, the passage of time was threatening. Every dancer knows from the moment they start in the studio uh, and they get into a working situation at 18 or 19, soon they will be old. Every athlete knows it, too. Uh, And it's an enormous burden, but it also makes of the time that you have an enormous privilege. And you want to manage your time really, really responsibly and profitably. Uh, And so it makes you very focused responsibly and profitably like how how did you experience that when you were thinking about um, what your earning potential was oh i'm not talking about career. money here i'm not this has got nothing to do with money this has to do with evolving as a physical being i mean listen if you want to make money don't go into dance mhm mhm has it been for someone who has had such a ritual and a discipline around work when you have noticed your body changing and new limitations arising, um, can it be difficult to have compassion for yourself? You can feel very sorry for yourself. I don't know if that's the same thing as having compassion for yourself. You can definitely feel yourself as victimized. Um, And uh, as I said before, and everybody does this in every possible arena, oh, I have lost so much Oh, I used to be able to run so much faster, so much further. Well, yes. Uh, But did every step mean as much to you as these do? Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you to recover from hip replacement surgery? This was the first ever surgery I'd have of any sort. Uh, So it wasn't just the hip. It was the idea that the body is being violated Uh, And it's being entered into by something from the outside world that, frankly, is out of my control. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was that kind of mental adjustment that I had to make physically. You know, we're used to pain. Um, I was off the cane in like a day, and I was walking, you know, basically straight out in a week. Uh, But the body was unmanageable. I mean, the balance was not there. Um, And I was kind of completely ungrounded. So it was a lot of therapy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was very careful about it because the last thing I wanted to do was to feel it moving out of place and have them go back in. 
and I the surgery has been you know remarkably successful. Um, and as is often said, I sometimes worry. Oops, that side's now better than the other side. <laughs> What was it like during those days before you were back up and walking? Did you did you have feelings that felt unfamiliar coming up? Well, no, uh, yes. Uh, it, I try always when I'm down uh, to find what is the value here? What is the lesson I can pull out of this so that I get some bang for my buck, right? Um, in order to, you know, have something thereafter uh, to value. Uh, And um, I would say that it had to do with the the everyday, uh, the mundane, the quotidian, uh, and that uh, you are very grateful. You're very grateful. And the gratitude uh, becomes a life of its own, and anything else that you get in a day, a small degree of progress, uh, an idea, whatever, is just icing on the cake. You're gra- you're grateful. What's your relationship like with your son now? Uh, very good, my son uh, and uh, my grandson. Uh, How old's your grandson? Uh, he is 11, 10, 10. He is uh-huh. 10, he is 10. Um, and uh, they're wonderful, and you know both of them in their own ways, as well as his wife, are are my best friends. Yes, I could say that. And you and your son work together. We do. How would he's sort of your like your business manager? Is that right? Amongst other things, counselor and chief. Uh, you know, agent, uh, le- legal advice on occasion, definitely promotional. Mom, smile more. Mom, uh-huh. <laughs> make it fun. <laughs> right? Was there a time in your relationship where uh, you noticed a shift between sort of mother-son dynamic to be able, you know, to being able to take um, guidance from him in a way that didn't feel disrespectful or inappropriate? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that, and I value this, that what you have here are two distinct generations. You have two very different modes of thought. I greatly value his capacity. He's he's a fabulous bridge builder. <laughs> I blow them up, he rebuilds them. My son uh, goes on occasion to the same trainer I do, and he was accounting to uh, the trainer, and the trainer goes, my trainer goes to Jess, geez, your mother curses a lot. And Jess goes, yeah, I know she's half wild. She's like feral. <laughs> <laughs> What are the words that you use to describe the phase of life that you're in right now? The phase of life that I'm in right now? Well, there's the near vision and the far vision, okay? The near vision is what I call a scratching phase, which is to say I'm sort of between between projects. I have uh-huh. a vague sense of what and where I need the next one to go, but it hasn't settled into anything tangible. It's a very uncomfortable place to be because there's no security under your feet. You don't have, you know, a clear path to a clear, um, tangible goal. Mm-hmm. And that's why the bigger picture uh, as to where I am now uh, is 
always about, okay, what's the real purpose here? Never mind that we, we, you know, you got to get a new project going, but why are you doing it again? Does that Mm. make any kind of sense? It does. That does. When you think about why, your why right now, why Mm -hmm. you are working, what is your purpose? Well, how are you thinking about that? The why is difficult because uh, the body becomes obviously a different instrument, um, and it's muted, if you will. It's like a violin with a mute on it. Uh, You are a different physical being at the age of 78 than you were at two or four. Uh Or 12, or 20, 25, 30, they're all different. Uh, They all have their own character. Uh, And I'm still uh, looking to stabilize myself in terms of my physical reality, because that's the bottom of the well I always go to when I'm in this phase of scratching. It's like, well, okay, what can I do? What can what do I have now that I never had before? Hmm. Which in my mm-hmm. case is a small movement, and small movement means a lot. And I can see it expand into much bigger movement on Uh, Other dancers, might we say, yea, verily, probably younger. Uh, But I must not let any sort of envy or resentfulness or regret enter into this picture, which is tough. When you say you have small movement now in a way that you didn't before, what is new about the small movement? Well, okay, so uh, we have in the world of the classical ballet something called plié. Plié means twofold in French, and a plié mm-hmm. is a very deep knee bend where essentially your feet are in an open position, uh, and you bend your knees all the way out until your bottom sits on your heels. That's a deep plié. Uh, I could probably get down. I don't know about getting up. Therefore, I do not do deep pliés. Uh, I do do demi-plies, that is a partial plie. And in the partial plie, because you're not so critically balanced, you have Mm. more range of movement. Uh, So in thinking about that myself, uh, when I transfer that to working with other dancers who do have a perfectly comfortable deep plie, I can suggest to them something I've learned in my demi for their deep. Mm. Interesting. Mm. That's what I try to tell myself. That's Twyla Tharp. Her new book is called Keep It Moving, Lessons for the Rest of Your Life. And you can see videos of some of her classic dances at our website at deathsexmoney.org. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affy Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Ayo Osibamuro. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to Heather Powell in Pennsylvania, who donates to our show each month. Be like Heather and become a Death, Sex, and Money member to support our work at deathsexmoney.org slash donate. While Twyla might not be able to show her dancers exactly what she wants in rehearsals anymore, she does get her point across in other ways. Dancers have a special kind of communication system in the studio. 
uh, just a bend or a twist or a little fa will do the trick. Is that an approving sound? What's oh, that no, that's mean? a disapproving sound. It drops. Uh-oh. Drops uh-huh. down. Aha! <laughs> that would be approving. Although if it's really great, I'll be jumping up and down. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.